Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvot Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but we would love to meet you in person. All are welcome, and that includes you. So if you want the full experience, please join us Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service at the corner of Arthur Ashe Boulevard and Grove in the historic synagogue across from the Art Museum. Can't make it in person? No problem. We are also live streaming on YouTube. Contact our administrator at tikvotdirector at gmail.com for the link during the week, or contact us on our website, tikvotisrael.com. There, you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. Rabbi Dr. Michael Schiffman is the Executive Director of Hevra USA, a 501c3 organization based in the U.S. that provides food security to hundreds of displaced Ukrainian Jews, as well as relief aid to people of all faiths in the war-torn areas of the former Soviet Union and now, I believe, in Israel. Dr. Schiffman was born in New York to a traditional Jewish family. He completed his education with a BA from Arizona State and continued to his master's and doctor of ministry. He served as the executive director of Hevra for the past 20 years, making visits multiple times each year to the volunteers serving as Hevra's representatives in Eastern Europe and Ukraine and the individuals served by Hevra's outreach. In addition to his charitable work, Dr. Schiffman serves Jewish communities as a sofer, which is someone that can repair Torah scrolls. He served as a congregational leader and rabbi for multiple communities prior to serving Hevra full-time. He's a published author and contributor to several publications and an adjunct professor for graduate theological programs in Florida, Texas, and Connecticut. When he has the opportunity, he enjoys the company of others, usually with a cigar, I might add. So if you like that, you'll really connect with Rabbi Michael. And he travels frequently in the U.S. as speaker about the situation in Ukraine, the power of kindness, and the work of Hevra. So please give a warm Tikvot Israel welcome to Rabbi Dr. Michael Schiffman. Thank you. It's really good to be here. It's good to be back. It's been 30 years, not 20. Yeah, we got to get a better picture of me for the announcements, too. But um, it is good to be. You've got to excuse me. I have a torn tendon in my leg, uh, which means walking is a challenge. I've got a torn rotator cuff. That's a challenge, too. So luckily, it's in my left arm, so I can still play with my right arm here, and I'm okay. Fifty years ago, I told God, I will go wherever you want me to go, and I will do whatever you want me to do. And right now, I'm falling apart at the seams, but I'm still going, and joyfully so. The first thing I talk about when we do things is, what's the next trip? Where are we going? But let me start off by talking about the Parsha a little bit. I always like to talk about the Parsha. This week and next week are like my favorite passages in the Bible. The story of Joseph, the patriarch Joseph, and how he reveals himself to his brothers. It has special meaning in a messianic context. And the reason is, Joseph is the clearest picture we have of Yeshua in the Torah. 
Because, you know, Yeshua said, if you believe Moses and the prophets, you would have believed me because they spoke about me. Where else did Moses speak about Yeshua? You could say, oh, well, it says a, there's a prophecy that says a prophet shall arise from among you that will be like me. You know, that's great, but that's a stretch. You know, you can't go, oh, that's Yeshua. Well, we only know that because Yeshua quoted it. Other than that, there's nothing very descriptive about him except the patriarch Joseph. And what happened was that everywhere Joseph was like the favorite child, he was sold into slavery. He was so good at it, he became the head slave of Potiphar. And then he gets accused and he gets thrown into prison. Then he's practically running the whole prison and he's interpreting dreams and then he's brought before Pharaoh and he goes from being a prisoner to being the second most powerful person in the world only under Pharaoh. Just like Yeshua who became a human who was found to be in human flesh, and he was like nothing. He was no king when he walked around in human flesh. And then he died. He was killed. And then he rose up and he was sitting at the right hand of God. He was given a name that is above every name, only under the Father. So there's a very clear picture of Yeshua and his life in the Torah through Joseph. Why is this important? Because do you ever get involved in a prophecy discussion ever? How many of you have never talked prophecy ever? That's what I thought. We all have. It's like everybody's hobby. What's, what's it gonna be like in the end times? Well, my view is this. If you wanna know what it's gonna be like What's it going to be like when Yeshua returns? What is it going to be like for Jewish people? When I listen to the church, you know what they tell me? Oh, well, yeah, at the end it says all Israel shall be saved. And they make it sound like Yeshua's going to come, he's going to set up the church as the head of everything, and then he's going to see the Jews off in some corner. He goes, okay, you can come in, but sit way over there and they kind of come in sheepishly. That doesn't sound like the Bible, does it? It's not the Bible, it's somebody's theology, but it's not my theology. The picture we have is Joseph when he reveals himself to his brothers. Judah pleads the case for Benjamin and it breaks Joseph's heart. He sends everybody out and so he's alone with his own brothers. And he says, I am your brother, Joseph. I love the way the King James translates the response. They were terrified at his presence. I am your brother, Joseph. Is my father still alive? And then he said, come near to me. And he hugged them and he kissed them. And he said, I will take care of you. Why? 
well, they didn't believe this, they didn't pray this and that and whatever. No, it's not based on that. Why do they get all that? Because I am your brother, Joseph. What does it say in Matthew 25? Inasmuch as you have done kindness. For the least of these, my brothers, I shall do it for you. Yeshua cares a lot about his brothers, his brethren, the Jewish people. And in a sense, that's what our ministry, Hevra, is about. In the Matthew 25 passage, it says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And they said, Lord, when did we ever see you like that? When you did it for the least of these, my brethren, you did it for me. When I started working with Hevra, we were visiting small villages in Ukraine. And I was visiting with these elderly Jewish people who didn't have bread to eat. And it, it bothered me. I'd be up at night pacing the floors. They don't have anything to eat. These are people who had the faces of my aunts and uncles. They looked like my family because they are my family. Not directly, but, but they are. And I couldn't stand the idea that they were going to bed hungry. I went to some elderly widow's house in a village called Alexandrovka, and we were opening a soup kitchen, and we were inviting her. She said, well, when is it? We said, 11 o'clock every day. And she said, no, I can't go. Why can't you go? She said, well, my granddaughter lives with me, and she's in school then, so I can't go. And I'm looking, why can't you go if she's in school? She said, because she has the shoes. She couldn't go because they only had one pair of shoes between them. Guess who went shoe shopping? It doesn't take a lot to change a life. For the cost of a pair of shoes, that lady could go to the soup kitchen and she could bring food home, so when her, daughter, her granddaughter got home, she could eat too. It doesn't take much to touch someone else's life. When I started doing this ministry, I quickly became addicted to it because there's something about helping people. There's something about being a blessing because there's so much darkness in this world. So much, much horrible things, and you know what I'm talking about because you live in this world too. I wanted to be some light. I wanted to bring some comfort. When the little girl came home, we were still there, and she came in and she said to her grandmother, there's a piece of bread in the kitchen, can I have it? And her grandmother said, yeah, go. Be like my grandmother going, go Tatala, it's okay. The girl was worried. I, want, I watched it. She said, if I eat this, will we have anything for tomorrow? A child should not have to worry like that. We talk about it as food security, and they didn't have it. It doesn't take a lot 
For $35, I can feed someone for a whole month. You know, we make it go far. And then what does $35 buy here? If you got a family, it's an afternoon at McDonald's. A whole month. And when I visit soup kitchens, I visit the soup kitchens. At first when I went, they go, oh, you want to eat? And I'm like, yeah, it's okay. You know, but then I was looking at the food and it looked really good. So I sat with the people and I'm eating. I was having soup. I had chicken Kiev. It was delicious, by the way. They make it better than they do here. No wonder. Anyway, I asked the people, let me ask you a question. Do you eat this way all the time here? Or are they just doing it because we're guests? You know, you kind of wonder about that. They go, no, this is what we get all the time. And it made me feel great because I realized the help we're giving is actually doing what it's supposed to do. And it's better than giving food parcels because in food parcels, people sit in their apartment and it's like they're waiting to die. When they come to a soup kitchen, they socialize. They're laughing, they're telling jokes. It's, they make an afternoon of it. We get to bless people, and it takes very little to be a blessing and to help. It's really kind of strange because things have changed greatly over the years. I've been here every couple of years for a lot of years. I remember when you got this building. How long have you, probably a while. Anyway, 1990, yeah, hmm? I was. <laughs> anyway, I've been doing this a long time and seeing these things happen, but our work has changed over the years. Because I started working with Hevra in 1993. And in 1993, our work had three focuses. One, feeding poor hungry Jews. Two, Aliyah, helping Jews get to Israel, because those were the years of the great Russian Aliyah. And the third was Messianic ministry. I originally started going to teach people because that's what I did. You know, you were talking about gifts and spiritual gifts. I always wanted the really cool gifts. You know, speaking tongues was great. And you know, then, you know, you make people fall over when you pray for them, you know, really good gifts. I never got those gifts, by the way. You know, I got, I got a really boring gift, teaching. And I thought, this is ugh, big deal. You know, I didn't like school, so I didn't like a gift where it had to do with teaching. But then God showed me something. Through my teaching, I saw lives changed. And it lasted longer than the cool gifts. And maybe it's not so cool, but you know, there are better things than being cool. Watching your gift change lives. So I'm still teaching. I love when my students come to me and say, this is the best class I've ever had. Doesn't, because I didn't do anything, but God used it to change their life. You never, it's never you, and it's never me. It's what God does when you make yourself available. And it's a great thing. Our work changed. We went from doing that to around the early 2000s. By the early 2000s, they didn't need me to teach so much because 
Like most people, they knew everything. So instead, I began doing humanitarian work. I just felt I wanted to. And I had been visiting all along people and doing, I, I just focused on it. And we did more. And I traveled with my friend, Eric, who was at the UMJC conference this summer. We've traveled all over the former Soviet Union. We used to work, by the way, not just in Ukraine, we used to work in Russia until Putin came and he didn't want any help from the West. So he closed us out. We are feeding a lot of people in Russia too. And Moldova and Belarus, we, we were involved. When we started doing the humanitarian, it kind of morphed into mostly like a soup kitchen ministry. And that's what I've talked about with you guys over the years. And they're important and we're still operating soup kitchens. Things changed with COVID. And we had to change with it if we were gonna be effective. We turned on a dime. The governments in Ukraine made us close all the soup kitchens. Just like here, everything closed down. Unless you lived in Florida, we didn't close Florida. But um, everything was closed. So we, we put on masks and we brought food parcels. I have pictures of people, happy people with masks, receiving food parcels. I don't like them as much because the people are sitting in their apartment, they can't socialize. Secondly, you never get as much food with a parcel as you do at a soup kitchen. And thirdly, it costs more money for that food parcel than it does for a soup kitchen. So you're getting less for more money and it only gives them food. It doesn't give them an opportunity to fellowship and minister with one another. But we did what we could. When the, they said you can have the soup kitchens open, we reopened. And then they closed again and then they opened again. It was the age of COVID. And then everything was good until one day the Russian army started flooding into Eastern Ukraine. And uh, we had been working with the war area for a long time when it was a more regional kind of thing. But when it became a full-blown war, we had to change again. We couldn't do soup kitchens, not because of COVID, but because I was watching when the Ukrainian war started, I was watching the news. Every city that was bombed were cities that we had soup kitchens in. 35 soup kitchens all over Ukraine. And one lady who worked in the soup kitchen, her house was bombed while she was at the soup kitchen. Destroyed the whole thing. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And it hurt me because I knew these people. I sat in their soup kitchens with them. I went to their apartments and, and visited with them. And these are the people who were now under attack. So what did we do? My coworker, Eric, lives in Poland. And him and his family and his brothers, his team of people who work with him, rushed to the border. And overnight, we were ministering to Ukrainian refugees, Jews and non-Jews. People are fleeing. You don't sit and say, well, are you Jewish? Okay, come on, the rest of you say, you know, we don't do that. We were ministering to them. How do you minister to people like this? First of all, the border was closed. They had people online, women and children only. The men weren't allowed to leave.
So we were on the other side of the border and we brought food. First we gave food to the border guards because they were hungry too. And then we said we want to give food to the people waiting online and they said go ahead. So we fed those people because it was in the winter and people were, some people froze to death and they were standing there for a couple of days because it, they don't just say come on over, it's a long wait. If you've ever had a wait in line to get your passport stamped when you come into the US, this is worse, a lot worse. For me, I usually do it in an hour, but we have Red Cross credentials. Everybody else, you're out of luck. So we fed those people. And then we said, we would like to bring food into the interior. So we went to the city of Lvov, which has a big Jewish community, and we had a soup kitchen there. So we brought food. Where do we get this food? We like to cooperate with other ministries. And the reason is, you can accomplish more. If you have to reinvent the wheel every time you do something, you're wasting a lot of time and energy and money. So we cooperate. So we cooperate with several ministries. I was given the opportunity to get 11 shipping containers, size of semi-trucks, filled with humanitarian aid, food, clothing, medicine. And we were gonna ship it from France to Ukraine. We didn't have enough money for all of it. So I called up a few ministries and said, would you like to partner with us and co-sponsor? And everyone wanted to do something and they weren't sure what to do. I had something they could do. So we got it financed, 11 of these. Some of them went to Ukraine and some we brought to the border in Poland. Incidentally, the place where they crossed over the border was a small village called Pshemish. You can't spell it and you probably can't pronounce it too well either. I grew up pronouncing it because that's where the Schiffmans came from, which was kind of weird because when I was there, I met the, the mayor of Pshemish. He's like seven feet tall. And then there's me, you know, shrinking as we speak. And uh, I got to talk with him. I said, my family's from here. It's not like they put a plaque up or anything, but um, I asked, what can we do to help? What are you doing to help? What can we do to help you and cooperate? And so we had all these things. I, I Suddenly I was talking with uh, officials. Usually I try to avoid officials and just do my work. But we were talking with these people. We got a lot of things done. And then we went from there over the border into a village in Ukraine called Ushgorod. Ushgorod normally has about 60,000 people, pleasant spa type village, you know, health food thing, you know, healthy place. And then they had 120,000 refugees. See, everybody didn't want to leave because they didn't want to split up their families. So they tried to stay in Ukraine or as close to Ukraine as possible. So we went to Ushgorod and I got to meet a lot of people. We did a lot of different things. We brought food in and clothing and it was all free for people. They had a register and they got everything for free. We built five showers. Why? They didn't have enough showers for people. 120,000 refugees. So we partnered with the Jewish agency in Ushgorod and in their offices we built five shower stalls so people could go in and take a shower because, well, 
you need showers eventually. They're just practical things. So we did these things to help and it worked. And uh, we're still working in Ukraine and we're still doing this work. In spite of the war, we found ways to work around it and do good. We partnered with other ministries from around the world. We opened up a facility, an old shopping center in Poland uh, for the people that come over. We got 1,500 cots. We had places for people to put their dogs, you know, like, like a kennels. We had a daycare center for people. World Kitchen set up a, a big kitchen. We had other places that were giving pizza. The pizza was horrible, but by New York standards. The food was good. It was all free for people. If they needed transportation, they'd go anywhere in Europe free if we just stamped their papers and whatever. We had a lot of good, and it happened overnight without a lot of coordinating, just people coming together wanting to help. Hopefully this war will be over, we can go back to normal. And meanwhile, during that time, I was told by the guy who started our work to begin to pray about Israel. And I said, all right, I don't know, you know, whatever, but to pray about Israel for direction. And then the war started. And the first question is, what can we do? What can we do to help? We shipped shipping containers. We got in touch with some other ministries. One of them you prayed for, Jonathan Burness. He's been a good friend, and we cooperated in a lot of things. Uh, he's been very good, and what a blessing to work with him. We sent over shipping containers. I posted a thing on Facebook. Some of you on it, I guess. They had um, a story about this old woman who lived in northern Israel, and she opened up her apartment, her house, as a, as a place for people, for soldiers to come. And she made them hot meals, she let them use the showers, and she got them fresh clothes. And it was like a place they could come for a little, what would you call it, respite? Relaxation, after, you know, just to get a catch a breather. And I thought, what a great story, because they interviewed her and she said, I take care of God's children and I trust God to take care of mine. I thought, that's cool. So I posted it. I got a call two days later from people who work with us. We were funding her stuff. We were sending her the clothing and the food she was giving out to the soldiers. And I thought, that is really cool. We had a hand in it and I didn't even know it. Talk about the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. A lot of doing ministry is being available. Because, I mean, look at me, I'm falling apart. I got a boot on that weighs a ton. It's like, I, I feel like the mafia was gonna like put me in cement overshoes and over the bridge. But um, anyway, regardless of this, regardless of the shoulder and my health, I told God 50 years ago, I'll go where you want me to go and do what you want me to do. Not with a doctor's note, with or without. Being available and being willing to serve. Doors opened and things happened. I'm not a mastermind for this stuff. I'm just along for the ride. And, and honestly, when you serve God like this, you have a front row seat on what God is doing. And it is exciting and it is amazing. Sometimes it's a little boring, but not usually. 
This is the boring part for you, having to listen to me. What I would like to do was, we have a great board who oversees Hevra. It's not just me. It's not a one-man show by any means. Um, we have partners that we work with around the world. It's our Hevra network. We have a network in Israel. We have a network in Ukraine. Um, the guy who used to run our network in Russia, when we had to close up the work in Russia, he moved to Israel. That became our network head there. And they're doing all kinds of things. And when I visit, I stay with them and I learn what they're doing and it's a blessing. And the thing is, you might go, well, you're not going there. Maybe you don't wanna go there. You don't have to go there. But I wanna offer you the opportunity to help us. Because here's the reality. We were able to turn on a dime and do what needed to be done because God's people were faithful and we had the funds to do it because we're careful how we spend it. But if people had not given, we would not have been able to help. We cannot do anything without our friends who sponsor us and help us. As I said, $35 a month Actually, it costs a little more than that, but it's a number we've always advertised for years, so we'll stick with it. $35 a month, more like 40, I can feed somebody for a month. $35 a month, I can send clothing and food and medicine to Ukraine. You know how that comes? These semis, each one has about a quarter of a million dollars worth of merchandise, brand new stuff. You know how much we pay? Zero. They're donated by these corporations. Ikea sent us beds. We got uh, Nike shoes. They're very comfortable. I got a pair for myself from them too. Only because my shoes fell apart. And they said, oh, come on, we'll give you from this. And they said, I said, no, it's for the people. They said, you're working here, take it. So I did, they weren't bad. This is not a Nike ad. I just want you to know that we get new stuff for nothing. All we have to do is pay the shipping. That's why for $7,500, $7,500, which in that world is bupkis, I can send a quarter of a million dollars worth of humanitarian aid. And then we don't have to pay anybody to distribute it because we work with all the ministries that are local. We just give them the stuff and they distribute it. So they get blessed and we get blessed and we don't even put our name on it because it doesn't matter if our name is on it. The fact is we get to do it. We get to do great stuff. I had a call from my coworker in Poland and he said, I talked with a couple of Hasidic rabbis in Ukraine. This is the coolest story I've got. I talked with two Hasidic rabbis in Ukraine. They ran orphanages for Jewish children, and we want to get them out of Ukraine because of the war. I said, what do you need? He goes, we still need $10,000. I said, I'll, I'll find it for you. I didn't even talk to my board yet. Called everybody on the board separately, and I said, this is a one-time opportunity. We need to do it. If we don't do this, we don't deserve to exist. That's how I felt to not help Jewish orphans, we wired the money. Everybody agreed with me, I was amazed. No, they, no, we have a good team. We sent the money out, didn't hear another word. 
Three days later on the news, I'm watching, and it said two Hasidic rabbis violated Shabbat and got 250 Jewish orphans out of Ukraine into Bulgaria and then to Israel. I looked at that, our name was not on it, and I said, we did that. We had a hand in that because God gave us the opportunity and we took it. Maybe you don't get calls like that too often, but you can be part of what we're doing. Help people, it's not for our sake, for their sake. Really, for God's sake. That's why we're here, that's why we serve. I want people to see Yeshua in us by the things we do. I want them to see that we wanna be the hands of Yeshua to bless and to help, even if our name's not on it. We don't need our name on it. What I do need is you to pray, and I do need you to support us, because I don't know what'll happen next, but I wanna make sure we're able to step up to the plate. I wanna thank you all, for those of you who do support us, our website is myhevra, my like mine, M-Y-C-H-E-V-R-A.org. And that's all it takes. We are grateful for your partnering with us. We are grateful for your support. And we are most grateful for your friendship. That's what hevra means, friendship. I want to thank you and may God bless you. Thank you. Thank you.